Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is Thursday, March the 1st. 2012, the Ides of March are upon us. We are headed for the first day of spring in 21 days. Uh, the final year of existence on mankind's earth. <laughs> I don't, not that I believe that or anything, but it's ticking by. And the reason I bring that up is because I don't, I don't think anything is going to happen on December 21st, 2012. If this is your first show, don't let that scare you. Uh, I just bring it up because it's amazing how time moves on, whether we're prepared for it or not. Uh, it's like summer outside today. It was so warm. And, uh, unfortunately for some folks in the middle part of the country, um, The, uh, the, we had some tornadoes come through a bit earlier than, uh, than expected. Branson, Missouri was hit hard. I didn't mention that yesterday. We also had some pretty bad storms yesterday that went to the south of us. So far, we've been spared that here in my area in Hot Springs, uh, Arkansas area, Garland County. Uh, but, uh, gotta get ready for that. But the big thing is you gotta get ready for life. Because time's moving on. Are you, creating more individual liberty in your life through preparedness or not. Uh, you either are moving toward greater individual liberty or you're moving toward less individual liberty. There is no in-between, and there is no, no such thing as being stagnant in this world. You're either increasing freedom or increasing oppression on yourself based on your own choices. I have people sometimes ask me, well, I feel stuck. How do I get out? Start taking action, even little bitty actions. You need some momentum. you got to start moving forward. Grow your own food. Uh, start saving your money. Start getting out of debt. Pick one. Pick one thing and go with it until you get somewhere with that one. And then pick another one and then pick another one. It'll seem like moving a boulder uh, the size of a house when you start out. But when it moves a fraction of an inch, a foot is coming next. And it'll be rolling down the hill before you know it. Uh, so there's a little bit of advice coming in today's show. I have a great show for you today. I have Natalie Bogwalker standing on the line. She's going to talk to us about primitive skills, homesteading skills, and uh, permaculture, and the firefly gatherings that she's put together with some partners and what's cool about them as well. Before I bring her on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Uh, you notice I said shelf, like something you put stuff on versus self, like you, your Yourself, you know, you touch yourself, that's you. No, 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 shelf, shelfreliance.com. Because they built some of the most innovative food storage solutions. That's why they call themselves self shelf reliance. That allows you to eat what you store and store what you eat and constantly have your food rotated from great big systems like the Harvest 72 that I have stuffed back in my closet full up of long-term uh, food and food that I eat what I store and store what I eat with uh, to little smaller systems like the pantry and cupboard that would fit in your pantry or your cupboard. They're part of the consolidator system, uh, solution. Uh, you can also Check out their long-term storage food called Thrive, some of the best-tasting long-term storage food that I've ever seen. Check them out today, Shelf Reliance 
SilverAndGoldShop.com. Next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. Remember, I think silver and gold should make up somewhere between 5% to 10% of your net worth. And I am not a believer that you do it all with ETFs, or you do it all with Silver Eagles, or you do it all with Bullion Bars, or you do it all with anything. I believe in having diversity in everything that we do. Uh, that gives you flexibility and options going forward. And Mary Beth has some of the coolest silver rounds, some awesome choices with gold as well. And you can get those Silver Eagles there. But you can get things like the Divisible Tea Party Silver Round, and that's like the only place you can get them directly from the source, so you get your best price and best service there. Mary Beth gives exceptional service. I've heard many people call her wonderful time and time again. That's why you should consider buying at least some of your silver and gold from Silver and Gold Shop. Dot com. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, get, get ready for a big change of the Facebook pages, folks. I'm going through it now. Uh, whether I want it to change or not, it's going to on March 31st. I believe is the date that they gave me. And uh, so there's going to be a big change in the way fan pages are laid out. Uh, Facebook is forcing that change onto us. It's actually kind of cool. I just need to do some things so that it uh, continues to uh, serve you guys well. Uh, as far as YouTube goes, remember I also sometimes put videos out over on uh, Vimeo when they're too long for YouTube. I'm working on right now uh, the video for the performance I gave or the speech I gave at the Liberty Alliance. I ran that as a podcast on Monday, but I want to put the video out. Uh, the original video that I generated apparently had some kind of corruption in it. It would play on the computer, but none of the video upload services would take it. When I tried to pull it back into Vegas, it had something corrupted at the, like the last, I'd say, 20 minutes. And uh, it actually shut Vegas down, so that's why the video uploaders wouldn't take it. I don't know why it played on the computer, but anyway, I'm regenerating it right now as I do today's show. And when I have it, I'll get it up on either YouTube or uh, Vimeo and let you guys know about it. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support this show at about 18.3 cents an episode. And for the $50 a year annual contribution or $5 a month contribution, uh, whichever you choose, uh, you get over $150 worth of ebooks on day one. You get over 32 different vendors that offer you discounts. You get some content also that's available nowhere else. And you get every single episode of the Survival Podcast ever done uh, in convenient zip files that you can download in blocks of 24 each. So if you want episodes 1 through 850 and you don't want to go through individually grabbing them, uh, you can go and get those zip files as part of your MSB membership. Generally speaking, the latest 50 episodes are available on iTunes or from the site. Uh, as, I, as I get caught up, uh, one of our guys on the forum zips those up for me. As he zips them up, I add them to the private membership area. With that, we got the housekeeping wrapped up. And again, I want to introduce Natalie Bogwalker. Natalie practices and shares the skills she considers vital to humanity's future. She lives in a lovely growing homestead nestled deep in the community in, sub in the southern Appalachians. She is the co-founder and director of the Living Skills School and the Fly Firefly Gathering. She has taught and given talks to schools, universities, and gatherings all over the country. You can find out more about her at wildabundance.net and the fire, and fireflygathering.org. She's an awesome person and she's here to join us today on TSP. Hey, Natalie, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to join you. Well, we're glad to have you here. Um, you have uh, been working with the stuff we were just, I was just uh, mentioning in the introduction for quite a while. Uh, specifically homesteading skills, permaculture, and primitive skills. So I want to kind of talk about all of those, but I want to kind of start out with kind of the, you know, from a preparedness standpoint, 
Uh, I talk a lot about homesteading, sometimes so much that people are like, dude, all you ever talk about is food and growing food, and you know, no wonder you used to be fat. But wh- why do you feel that homesteading skills are important for uh, survival? Well, I think that they're important for survival as far as preparedness, but I think they're also really important for us being humans right now, like whatever our situation may be, it really helps us to ground out in meeting our basic needs. And I think that in order to be fully realized human beings, we have to know how our basic needs are met. So um, from a survival standpoint, really, survival is very difficult if you're not able to meet your food needs, as it sounds like you are very familiar with. And it's something we don't really think about in our everyday lives in a modern sort of world because those needs are provided for by stores and such like that. But if those stores ever did disappear, then how are we going to meet those needs? And this is what I really want to empower people to do is meet their needs now because if some survival situation came up, you're not going to have time to learn those skills. So I'm all about people learning them now and not just to prepare for a survival situation, but mostly to enhance people's lives right now as they're living. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's obviously what we talk about every day here with living a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. What are some of like the, the homesteading skills that, I mean, you're really passionate about bringing back to America? Well, I think orcharding is a really big one, growing fruit trees. I think that gardening is huge. Animal husbandry, hunting. You know, some people don't necessarily think of that as a homesteading skill, but I think it's one of the most vital ones. Like, why why keep animals when you can foster them living in the wild and then harvest them? Like, I think that's a, in some ways, more sustainable way of doing things. Um, but... You know, keeping chickens is really important. Dealing with tools, knowing how to sharpen tools, knowing how to make tools, knowing how to repair tools, Um, working with the cycles of nature, harvesting wild foods, that's really important. And this is, I'm kind of blending into the primitive skills, and that's because I see the two as totally integrated, primitive skills, homesteading, and permaculture. And that's why I like to teach them all together in like a holistic sense. I think that's really interesting, and I've always kind of felt that way as well. We go to homestead, we're kind of, we, if we look at, like, let's say, the homesteader versus, like, let's say, the, the uh, conventional tribalists that live, like uh, Native Americans in a teepee, you're changing the structure of the dwelling, but the community interaction, the way that people feed themselves, the way they look after themselves, and the basic concept of, if I need it, I have to provide it or find something that provides it for me, kind of stays the same amid those two. Well, bring permaculture in in a minute because it does blend right into them. But, I mean, that is kind of what you're saying, that if if I have a, a homestead and I might have a fireplace, so I still have to make flame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to know how to make that fire and know how to make that from scratch, too. And that's something that I really get into, too, is I think that everyone needs to have a basic understanding of all the pieces that go into this. But I think that we're going to have a hard time surviving or enjoying ourselves, for that matter, if we live totally by ourselves out in the wilderness. And I think community skills is a really important thing. So communication, really, really important. And also accepting that we may we may decide that we want to specialize in one of these skills while having a grounded understanding in the whole big picture. You brought up a whole list of things when I asked you about homesteading. One of the things you said was like taking care of tools, sharpening tools. What are some of the tools that you think that maybe get overlooked 
by a lot of people today because there's so much technology out there. And I mean, I use this for example all the time. I love my GPS, but I sure know how to use a compass and I know how to make a sun compass. So those are like three things that, that all do the same thing with different, mm-hmm. uh, different levels of accuracy. And sometimes one's better than the other. If there's no sun, a sun compass doesn't work. But if I can't get GPS signal, a GPS doesn't work. So, um, what are maybe some tools that maybe people have replaced with more modern tools, but we would want to have around that are, you know, maybe our, our forefathers used? Well, I think knives are the most basic tool. That's that's what I kind of start all of my programs with is knife sharpening. That's a very, very important tool. Eyes are really important for, for mowing, and that's something, mowing and harvesting, that's really important. Um, I think that basic hand tools like shovels, very important. You just brought something up that I actually want to kind of talk about uh, because uh-huh. I think people don't understand the maintenance that goes along with making this tool stay effective, and that's the scythe. Um, you know, when you when you get a scythe, you see, you know, you picture the Grim Reaper with his big old, you know, reaper, and he's got his blade up there and all. But, you know, and if you have a good, sharp scythe and you, you get a hold of it and you start twisting with it, man, it cuts great, but it doesn't stay like that for a long time. So what, what are, can we talk maybe a little bit about the maintenance of that tool? It's, it's, they, they make a specific scythe sharpener. So scythes are curved on the inside of the blade, and so you use a slightly different tool to keep them sharp. And a scythe sharpener is actually useful for sharpening knives as well. I have a friend and actually student who grew up in um, the former Soviet Union, and they didn't let them use tractors. Like, all of their work was done with scythes, and he was sharpening scythes constantly as a young man. And he actually sharpens his knife all the time with a scythe sharpener. It's this kind of somewhat conical-shaped device. And I would say that that would be a really important tool to add into, into a collection of tools for the homestead. i found that, like, a lot of times people think, suburbanite in, in everything they do. So they think if I need to cut something down, I can use a lawnmower, but you don't lawnmower wheat. And then the other side of that is you can use a scythe in areas where there's a lot of stones or rocks or logs or debris where you would end up basically damaging any type of piece of mechanized equipment. Yeah, very, very true. And you're also keeping in shape. <laughs> it's a really yeah. important preparedness um, strategy. And that's something that comes from all of these different homesteading skills. Like if you're heating your house now, starting heating your house with wood, you are getting in shape. You're learning those skills. And you're also enjoying living within the cycles of nature. And I think that that's something that I really want to send forth is the idea of like integrating ourselves into nature's patterns and cycles from the get-go. Awesome. And how do you feel that permaculture kind of blends into these, these two other subjects of homesteading and primitive skills? Well, the idea of permaculture, so permaculture can go in a lot of different ways. But for me, kind of the core and essence of permaculture is about creating a situation on a piece of land that is ultimately sustainable. And that's something that tribal people did. It's something that a lot of, like, homesteader types did. It's something that people have been doing in parts of Europe for a really long time. And it's something that's a little bit foreign to a lot of um, folks in America, like being able to look towards, you know, 80 years, 100 years in the future and make sure that you are giving back to the land as well as as well as benefiting from it. And so what, I'm, what I like to do is look at the basic principles of 
permaculture. I've got like 22 of them that I like to look at. And the way that they integrate into homesteading and primitive skills is just beautiful. But permaculture, I mean, it's really a way of looking at the world in an integrated way. And that's why I think I tie it in, you know, with homesteading and primitive skills and, you know, even herbal medicine and gardening and and communication skills is because it kind of brings everything together. I think that it can be also taken on its own and be like this upscale landscape design. And for me, that is, that's kind of taking permaculture out of its roots. Yeah, I kind of look at it like a Swiss Army knife, right? So the big one, like with like 80 attachments to it. Mm-hmm. And if you just pull out the saw blade or just pull out the fish hook remover and say, that's a Swiss Army knife, that's, well, that's a piece of a Swiss Army knife. Yeah. And permaculture, like when I was just at the Liberty Forum conference, there was one person that got up and was talking about things and just kind of uh, on the open mic day and just going over and saying, you know, learn about permaculture. That's sustainable agriculture. And I was, you don't want to say anything, but you're, I'm like, Ugh, because it's like, it's such a small piece. But what were you saying earlier made me remember this, this documentary I watched a while ago. I kind of like get your thoughts on how, how we can like learn from this and, and use this in our own lives. There was this, this tribe down in South America these guys went to live with, one of those type of things. And they had, and they had their own you know, piece of land that the government down there like acknowledges is actually theirs. Kind of like we have reservations up here, except uh-huh. that they actually got a place with stuff you can use instead of like Wind River, Wyoming. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it's like <laughs> here you go, here's here's your dirt. You get dirt, you know, and then, that's why they built casinos. But these guys actually could still live the same way they used to because this was a legitimate piece of jungle. So uh-huh. everybody in the tribe decides they need a new canoe. So the way they make a canoe is they cut down a great big tree, and they, they do it basically similar to what the Native Americans did with a dugout canoe. Uh-huh. So the whole tribe sits down and decides, yes, it, it's okay to cut down one tree. And then they spent like three weeks to figure out which tree was the tree that was okay to cut down. And they were looking at things like how long would it take to grow back? Were there any trees that would take over in the area? And then they debated it for like another week. And then they finally decided, okay, we're going to cut this one tree down. And then, like, the dude that cut the tree down, like, you would think that's, like, a job nobody wanted to do, but, like, he was honored to be the guy that got to do it. And, like, he said some sort of shamanic prayer, basically apologizing to the tree for cutting it down and saying that they needed it so that they could live and they would make sure that a new tree would grow. And you look at that compared to a machine that cuts every single tree down and just runs it over and then plants pines and calls that sustainable forestry, and the contrast leaves you almost unable to say anything. But I was wondering if maybe we could get some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful example that you bring up. I mean, I think that it really looks at, like what I was talking about earlier, looking at the repercussions of your actions. And that's something, I'm actually building myself a log cabin right now, and I've spent a lot of time in my forest looking at the trees that are suppressed that are only going to get to a certain height and then die just because there's a big tree right next to them. And really, really take the time to decide which trees to take and kind of understand what the effect is going to be on the forest. And I feel like I'm a very, you know, humble human being who has really who is somewhat detached from that history that you're talking about. I mean, I'm sure that tribe has figured out how figured out how to choose the tree in ways that I couldn't even imagine. But I'm trying to make these, you know, 
slow and humble attempts to learn from that sort of culture. And so as I've been, you know, cutting the logs from my log cabin and cutting saplings for rafters on my outdoor kitchen and stuff, I have really been just focused on, okay, which tree is going to be the best? And the thing is, it might take more time at the outset. And this is the idea with permaculture, too, is all this planning. It can take a lot more time from the outset, but in the end, you really end up saving yourself time, saving yourself money, saving yourself a lot of effort because you've taken the time to really listen, think it through, and also listen to the land and hear what it's telling you. Yeah, I remember Jeff Lawton saying in one of his DVDs that when you practice agriculture, you spend 30 hours of work for every hour of thinking. And when Mm -hmm. you practice permaculture, you spend 30 hours of thinking for every hour of work. And it might sound slower, but he said it's a much more fulfilling way to live. And I think it is. And you're right. And I would, I'd love to go talk to those guys if I could ever figure out how to communicate with them because they were, you know, using a translator. And something's always lost in that when you go to a true, uh, you know, uh, a, a true native tongue to a modern English tongue. There's mm-hmm. always something lost. But to actually learn, yeah, how do they know? I think part of it was like, for this canoe, they needed like a really big tree and it had to be a certain kind of tree and there's only so many. So maybe if they were building a hut, they would have put a little less effort per tree cut down. But yeah. when it came to this particular species, they knew like this had to be managed very – like they were thinking about their great-grandson needing a canoe in the future and would there be one. And then the animals that lived in the tree, would there be enough to keep those around because they ate those or maybe something they ate ate those. And it was just amazing to realize that like – People that we would think of as not being sophisticated, to me, that's a tremendous amount of sophistication. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And understanding that we as humans and just even as animals need to, in order to survive, like we need to take from nature. And that's something that I think that a lot of the preservationists don't really have in their minds is that humans can be a healthy part of an ecosystem. And that can happen if we really take the time to understand what's going on. And I think that the idea of, you know, people having the wilderness areas and then the cities and not having much contact and the whole leave no trace thing, I mean, I think that it has some good aspects to it, but I really want to see humans, people, us getting back into being an essential part of living systems. Absolutely. And I mean, when you say that, it makes me think of like those, those preservationists that, that are, to me, disconnected would say something like, well, if you go out and, you know, shoot a squirrel or a deer or whatever, you're taking and you, you know, you're, you're, you're devaluing the resource. To me, I'm, I'm invaluing the resource. I'm making it actually worth more. But if you ask the same person, well, what about a pride of lions? Are they natural? And they'd say, yes. Well, that pride of lions is going to be an apex predator and it's going to take on average one large game animal a day. 365 days a year off the field, but it serves a purpose, and it, it doesn't even have the ability to to plan. It just takes only what it needs, and that works out. So to me, there's no reason humans can't do better than that. Yeah, 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 I totally agree. Cool. So I usually have people put together some questions for me, mm-hmm. and I have to say this is the first time anybody has ever submitted this question uh, for an interview. And I think it's so freaking awesome. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say to it. You submitted that you wanted me during this interview to ask you a question. What do you want to do with your life? I think that's an amazing thing to be willing to be, uh, to be willing to ask, you know, be willing to have that question asked of you. So I'd love to hear what you want to say in response to it. Oh yeah. My pleasure. Well, um, 
there's this book called Soulcraft. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a book that I've gotten really excited about. The author's name is escaping me right now. Could you, could you say the but book's name again? Soulcraft. Soulcraft. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And there's an excerpt out of it that says, like, your greatest, your greatest mission, something like that, is the intersection between your talents and where the world's needs meet. And it may actually be backwards. It may be um, your greatest mission is the intersection between the world needs and your gifts. And what I really see as, like, my mission is to empower people to live closer to the earth and to give people thought as to why they might want to. And so I don't want to push anything on anybody, but I really want to open up opportunities for that. And that's something that the Firefly Gathering has done over the last five years tremendously for probably at this point thousands of people. And um, something that I really hope to bring forth with the Living Skills School as well. I think it was Bill Plotkin wrote that? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he's that. That is a great book and something I probably need to read a second time. Um, and and you just mentioned the flyer firefly gathering. So you want to maybe tell folks a little bit about what a firefly gathering is and what it's like and what they can do there. Yeah, sure. So I um, started with my friend Caleb Wallace about five years ago, this event called the Firefly Gathering, and it's grown to the point where we have now like 10 profit-sharing workers putting the thing on, and we have over 100 instructors teaching homesteading skills, primitive skills, and permaculture. And what it can, it happens once a year for four days just outside of Asheville. And then there's intensives afterwards for people who want to go deeper with a single scale. And what it does is exposes people to a massive amount of knowledge and also exposes people to other folks who are excited about this stuff. And I think a lot of people, when they live, you know, in suburbia or way out in the country or even in the city, they just feel isolated when they're interested in the sorts of things that we're talking about. And what the Firefly Gathering does is it brings those people together around skills. So people can learn lots of skills, learn skills for survival, learn skills for homesteading. They can also meet people who want to do the same things. And I think that 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 piece is almost as important as the hard skills that they learn. Like it can be really inspiring. It can also allow people to make connections that they want. But there's two classes a day that are offered um, or two class sessions a day. And during each class session, there's about 100 or excuse me, there's about 30 classes going on. So there's an immense number of choices during the during the gathering. And some examples are blacksmithing, bow making, brewing, making mead, um, butcher clay paints, drop spinning, spinning, flint napping, flute making, leather working, mushroom hunting, nonviolent communication, uh, native basketry, plant propagation. You know, the list just goes on and on and on. And if folks want to learn more about that, there's a website at fireflygathering.org. And it's happening this year, June 21st through 24th, and then the intensives are the 28th, through, the 28th of June through the 1st of July. And where's that going to be at? Um, the main event is happening at a at a summer camp. We take over <laughs> this 
crazy summer camp with a 20-acre lake and cabins and a lodge and stuff. And it's called Camp Pinnacle. It's south of Asheville by about a half an hour. And so we take over that for the four days. And then the intensives are actually happening at my land and my neighbor's land here in Barnardsville, North Carolina, which is just 20 minutes from Asheville. Oh, it's a beautiful area. The the Western Carolinas are just amazing. I remember I was there about 10 years ago, and uh, we were driving all along the North Carolina uh, border with, I think, Tennessee, maybe it was, and it was just unbelievable. That road was so windy, though, I actually almost felt seasick by the time I was done driving it. I think it's the only time I've ever been sick in a vehicle in my life. Yeah, we've got freeways too. We've got we've yeah. got the Blue Ridge Parkway, and we've also got got two forty and forty and twenty six. So you can you can take your choice: scenic and car sick, or direct <laughs> and boring. It was only about. I'm not picking on the roads or nothing. It was only about like I'd say like a ten mile section of this one road that was right along the border there, and it was up uh-huh. in the, in the mountains, and it was like. We got to the end, and all three of us were like, man, I'm glad that's over with. Uh, but it was beautiful, absolutely breathtaking, beautiful. Let me ask you a question. How did you come to to make this such a big part of your life? Like, were you brought up, like, I know you're in the Appalachian, so there's a, and I'm from the you know, Appalachian regions of Pennsylvania, so I know there's a huge tradition there, and it kind of was part of how I grew up. Did you grow up that way, or did you find this later in life, or was it something more like, like me where you grew up with it, and then you left and came back to it? And it's that last option. I Ah. actually grew up in Washington State, and my mother was really into wild foods and botany and basketry, and so I was pretty immersed in that when I was a child. And then I kind of got away from it. I was actually a genetic engineering student, but then I got hit by a car and um, got a little settlement and traveled and really looked for meaning in life after having that super near-death experience. And during those travels, I really came to community being really important to me as well as self-sufficiency. And so I really started delving into that and I got a degree in ecological agriculture and then soon after that got involved in more of these primitive skills that I'd had some basis for when I was a child, thankfully, but developed more. I'm I'm a one of my specialties is hide tanning and so I'm a I'm a pretty proficient hide tanner and that's that I came to about ten years ago and I started living in a um in an all primitive community in North Carolina, we cooked all of our food over the open fire, started all of our fires by friction, lived in bark lodges that we constructed in the Catawba style, and lived there for about five years and then moved in with my with my ex-partner and homesteaded up near Boone, and then just nine months ago, bought my own piece of land, and so now I'm now I'm taking a lot of these skills, whether they be the primitive building skills, the homesteading, and more quote-unquote, natural building skills, and I'm applying them on this piece of land that I plan on being on forever. <laughs> it's awesome. pretty exciting. Yeah. That's very awesome. Um, so I, I looked up one of the sites that you had listed for me, um, wild, wildabundance.net, and there's a picture of you on there, and you mentioned tanning, and you've got this, this deer skin that looks like wrapped around you, and you're blowing fire to life, and that's cool. But is that – so is this like your full-time occupation now, or do you have like a, 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 like a day job and do this part-time? I mean, are, are you living this as a, a full-time lifestyle, or is this just a big piece of who you are now? 
Well, I do live it as a full-time lifestyle, and part of it is organizing the Firefly Gathering and dealing with websites and all this sort of thing. So okay. my, my boyfriend actually owns land right next door to where I'm building my log cabin, and he is on the grid right now. He's working on getting off. But I spend, I spend a couple days a week dealing with – I, I live kind of a double life. I spend a couple days a week dealing with, you know, the modernity that I need to in order to – get the word out about um, about these things that I feel so passionately about. And then the rest of the week, I live on the land. Now, it's not all it's not all in bark huts anymore. You know, I'm building a log cabin, which is a little bit of a step towards modernity. Um, but I like to I like to dabble in it all. And I and I wear buckskin a lot. It's a wonderful, wonderful um, material to make clothes out of. People have used it for a long time. And I still start friction fires, but sometimes when it's cold and I want a fire in the wood stove, I use a lighter. So what I've really come to, especially in my 30s, is not being... Purist. <laughs> sure. I really, I, love I really, that. Yeah, me too. I really, I really like to take the best of different time periods and different technological levels and integrate it into my life and really enjoy doing my best to live in a way that is like stepping lightly on the earth and also live in a way to where I can share skills and to where I'm not just stressing myself out. You know, I, um, I, I love hearing that, and I, I, I keep saying I'm going to do this one day, and sooner or later I'm just going to ignore the idiots that will will surface and do it. Um, you mentioned using a lighter. I, I, I can tell you for a fact, if we went into like a random city like Atlanta, Georgia, and pulled 20 adults off the street and said, here's a big lighter and a fireplace, and there's a pile of wood over there, and there are woods and stuff all around, said, go make a fire without a fire starting log or whatever, just go make a fire, over half of them wouldn't be able to pull off making a fire. Yeah. So Probably I think more like, than like fire building is not just can you make – the thing is when you learn to do friction fire and you end up with a coal, well, you have to understand tinder and things like that and, and, and air supply and keeping it going and building it up. What mm-hmm. people think of the big lighter, they think it was just light it. Well, try lighting a log. And I think there's like just, just teaching the average American again how to build a fire even with a combustion device is something noble because people don't know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something like I really like to teach primitive skills largely because I think that all of us have this deep like ancestral need to be practicing them. But I think really some of those skills like like I think for me it might be more important to teach fire building 101 than it would be to teach friction fire. And I teach both of them, but I think that I really like to focus on skills that people can apply to their everyday lives. Yeah, so they can go, at least if you're going to cook on your grill, don't drown drown it in that lighter fluid before you, you know, I mean, it, it's just simple things like that, too, because yeah. not everybody's going to live the way that you're choosing to live. A lot of them are going to come to your gathering and go home and you'd love to think that they take some of that piece back. That it's not just something they do once in a while, but something they actually integrate into their lives. Yeah, yeah, and that piece that they're integrating into their lives may be may be really small or it may be really big. Like it might be that they start making sauerkraut in their kitchen, you know, sure. like some some small little step. Or it might be that they decide that 
you know, there's one man, um, his name's Tommy Thunder, who came to the first Firefly gathering, and he's an ex-railroad engineer, and he used to live in Florida, and he was so inspired <laughs> that he sold his house, he found land in the country, and started building a log cabin, and he's a good friend of mine now. It's, it's really crazy. So, I mean, I think that the thing with Firefly and with the living skills school, I'm actually outside, and it's windy and making noise, um, is that I really want it to be accessible to everyone and for everyone to feel comfortable. Like whether it's whether it's what somebody might be called a wood hippie or something, you know, that's living living totally primitively. Or whether it be someone who just is interested in this sort of stuff and wants to wants to explore primitive skills or wants to start gardening or composting or whatever it be, or someone who's concerned about um, collapse, you know, I want to make everything that I'm involved in accessible to everyone. And, awesome. Uh, so tell yeah. us a little bit about your land you got there. Well, I got myself seven acres. Awesome. Um, and it's a mix of forest and um, some open land. And it's pretty, it's pretty exciting to me. Like it had been a dairy farm probably 40 years ago. And this is something permaculturally that I think is pretty important. Like some people will buy a piece of land that has pristine forest on it. And then in order to grow their food, they have to go and cut down this pristine forest. And what I prefer to do is look at land that has already been impacted by people and see how I can be a positive influence on that land. And also, here in the Southern Appalachians, open land is really hard to come by because our forest is so robust. It just likes to likes to bust into the open land. And I honor that about the forest. But I think that I've, I've eked a gardening existence and eked an existence out of crazy steep forested land a lot and I'm really excited to have a little bit of open land to plant a food forest and plant my annual garden and and have some have some animals. I'm really excited about that. And I'm blessed to be surrounded by community. I have a, have a couple friends who have 22 acres that adjoins mine. Another friend who runs a chestnut school of herbal medicine who has four. And then my boyfriend has five and a house, which is really convenient. Awesome. And um, and it's just I just feel so lucky to be here. Just just nestled in community. And that, I think, in some ways is more important than the land that I actually purchased. I, I completely agree with that. I think community is, is huge on that. I know what you're saying about the open land thing. Sometimes I almost wish that instead of moving up in the mountains where I have this huge forest on my property, that I'd actually taken some land that somebody had already damaged. Uh, mm-hmm. Where you can, re- you know, some of it you can keep open for some of the things we use open land for. With, I mean, in forests there's glades and openings and things, but on the other hand, is if you start with that, then you can basically rebuild the forest and, and almost design a designer forest. That's part of permaculture principles. Oh yeah, definitely design a forest that meets our human food needs and also the needs of the wild animals around us, which which we may end up using for food one day. Sure, <laughs> absolutely. And, and yeah, I really, I really advise that strongly. And also looking at the steepness of land. Like, if you live on really steep land, you're going to be spending a lot of energy terracing, whether you choose to bring in a backhoe to do the terracing or whether you're doing it by hand. And that's a lot of energy to be putting into something. And, um, that's something I've done a lot. <laughs> 
So gentle land definitely has its benefits. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing I've got is a lot of slope. We've got some, some decently relatively flat with some decent slope to it as well that I've been doing swaling in. And I've had these oh, two, yeah. You know, that's been tough because y- your, your land is similar to my land with the amount of rock in, in the soil and all. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I'm pulling out these huge guni boulders. And I, I have all these boulders from the hugo the culture beds and the swales we put in. I had these two more swales planned. I'm like, I think I'm going to go with the African thing where you just take the rocks and put them on the contour line, and that slows the water down. And oh, yeah. I'm going to plant, you know, and that's going to be what I'm going to do with that piece of land. Mm-hmm. And it is hard where if I had, you know, East Texas sandy loam, I could swale everything, you know. I could go out and, and do a hundred a hundred feet of swale a day without breaking a sweat yeah. in the winter anyway, uh, with yeah. a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and that just ain't gonna happen in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting, and I like what you're talking about about working with the landscape rather than trying to tackle it with methods that might be appropriate for a different landscape. Like on my land, um, my forest is a little bit eroded because it used to be a dairy farm. And so what mm-hmm. I'm doing is as I'm thinning because it's super thick, I'm placing all the brush that I'm, that I'm taking out on contour. And that really slows the water down in the similar way that you're talking about. Whereas I wouldn't want to take a, take a wheelbarrow and a shovel into the forest and dig swales, you know? Yeah, it's a lot of work. Roots, roots and rocks together make swale digging tough. And, that's from digging in a relatively open, flat area that I did them on. I can't even, I, I can't even imagine it. But yeah, working with what you have, like, so there's a pole line that runs the, the, the power lines up along the side of the road uh, on a huge piece of my, uh, a huge property line on my property. So that's already been cut back by the people that put the telephone poles in, the, uh, the telegraph poles in. Uh-huh. So our thought was instead of cutting our forest, and that, that place actually gets solar exposure, that allows us to maybe just take another couple feet so we stay out of the easement and we don't grow up into the lines and just grow kind of a line of designer forest there and leave the rest of it the heck alone. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And that's really something that I just want to drive home is working with what you've got, you know, whether it be a city lot or whether it be, you know, a big tract of, tract of land, like figuring out what makes sense on the land you're at. And if you're going to buy land, really looking for land that's going to meet your needs. Like if you want to raise beef cattle, you know, you probably aren't going to want to buy a bunch of intact forest, you know, sure. that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's just not, it's not, they're not a forest animal. They're a, they're a savanna creature by, by, you know, their natural ancestry. Um, yeah. You know, they're not like a, a, a boar. You can raise boar uh, hogs in, in a forest environment if you control them and do it right. But uh, cattle, unless you've got really kind of a special forest, let's call it that, it's not going to work out real well. How do you find your piece of land? You got all these folks around you that are cool. Did like you know somebody that said, "Hey, this is available," or did you just generally start searching and, and find it and get that lucky? You know, I searched for about three years, and I think that that searching was really important to <laughs> do. But then, what ended up happening was I was in a transition period in my life and I was doing some work trade on a friend's farm living in a little adobe cottage they had and the land adjoining theirs came up for sale, 18 acres. And a few of the people that I had been looking for land with, I was part of this big um, Appalachian Roots community. We were trying to find this huge, perfect piece of land that would accommodate everyone's needs. And, of course, we couldn't find it in the price range very easily. And so there were just a few people that were in that land search group, and we got together and made the purchase of the 18 acres because none of us could have done it on our own financially. And then we just divided it up at the sale. 
So that worked out really, really, really well because you can get a much better price if you find a bigger piece of land, obviously. And I think when you do that search, you may find the piece of land that you want, but also as you're doing the search, I think that the people in your community get to know that you're looking for land, and then if something comes up, they'll tell you. And I think really making connections with with local people wherever you are is really important, both for finding the land, but also having good neighbors when you're actually at the land. And that's something that, that I've learned over the years in different land situations is that it's really important to learn the culture of where you are if you are a transplant like I was and really try to respect that. And something that's really big in the Southern Appalachians where I'm living is kind of this live and let live principle. And so, you know, going along with that live and let live and help each other out, you know, I've made wonderful connections with like our next door neighbor is well, next door. It's not really next door. We <laughs> can around to get there. But, Your adjoining um, neighbor, right? Yes, my adjoining neighbor, a different adjoining neighbor than the folks that I knew before. He's this old man. He's about 80 years old, and he's been living on that piece of land his whole life. And he knows it so well, and he used to pick blackberries and hunt squirrel on my land. And he has taught me so much about this area. And if I would have come at him with some, like, I know better than you, yay, organic agriculture, I can't believe you sprayed anything, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere with them, you know? And so I think really being flexible and really coming, meeting people where they're at, no matter where you are, whether it be Alaska or the Northwoods or the Southern Appalachians is just really key. It's interesting you say that because I've had some experience and I've had friends that have had experience in, let's say, a little further north in the Appalachians, um, up in West Virginia, Tennessee, northern, you know, northeastern border of Tennessee, that area, that say that they've moved into an area and they've been as nice as they can to everybody, but they always feel like an outsider. So if you're saying you haven't felt that way in your area? Well, I think that it's funny. There's, there's certain little things. Like, I mean, it takes a little while for people to get used to you, and you kind of need to get to know the culture. And there's this. Uh, well, let me make sure I'm clear here, because I have like one friend that's a moderator on our forum, and yeah. his family moved there in 1981, uh-huh. uh, and and they live the way everybody does around. This is in Tennessee, and it's still like. You're, they don't. They're not mean to you or nothing. But he just said you. You'll. You know, like maybe his kids will be accepted as locals. You know, and that's third generation to get to that local thing. And and I've noticed that in in that part of the country. I've really not spent a lot of time where you're at. So maybe there is a subtle difference there. Or something. I don't know. Well, it's interesting because where I'm at is famous for clannishness. <laughs> okay. And for for people not being accepted, but I think that I think they're just smiling, offering to help people out, um, and really really taking an interest in what they're doing and not being judgmental is really key with that. And I mean everyone's in a different situation. But um but yeah, I think I think just listening is really, really important. And giving gifts, like, you know, there was I I practice herbal medicine and our neighbor um the other day I went to go pick up a few beers at the local gas station. And um, all the old men hang out there, and we made eye contact, and I asked him how he was doing, and he said that he'd had a cold for a few weeks, and, 
you know, I went home and got some elderberry syrup, which is this great antiviral, and took it to him and was like, here's here's some medicine. And um, he was like, oh, elderberries. Those make good jelly, too, don't they? (laughs) It's just. I think well, so you're I, functioning I, like someone from the area too, because that's that's what they would consider medicine. So you're you're speaking their language, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You're like and the guy that moves to Paris, but he speaks perfect, you know, Parisian French. So you're in. That's and I cool. would, yeah, I wish I would be, but it's also just <laughs> knowing that I am I am an outsider, and that's okay. Yeah. And accepting that, and just hoping that that would set me where I'm at and not necessarily thinking that I'm going to be accepted like one of the Dillinghams would be. (laughs) That's the big big family around here. I got you. That's cool. I was just curious. The other thing you talked about was kind of getting a group together and you bought this land and you took your piece. I think that's wonderful. Now, I give people a lot of time saying, hey, Jack, I'm looking to put together a group, you know, put a prepper compound or a primitive retreat or something like that. And their view of this is everybody goes in, pays a certain amount, and they, like, share the land. Um, I see all kinds of problems with that. I think each person paying for what they can afford and and taking kind of a subdivided piece. And, yeah, we're all going to be good neighbors. We're all going to be part of a community. But, like, this is mine and that's yours. To me, that just seems like it'll work better. Yeah, I think it's kind of the best of both worlds because then we have community, but we've grown up in a culture where we're not so used to sharing. Like, if we would have grown up in that... South American indigenous culture that you were talking about, like we would totally be used to sharing. It would be no problem, but, but we're not really there and that's okay. You know, I think it's really important to look at where we're at and work with it, work with where we're at. And I think for me, after several attempts at communal ownership situations, I have learned that, you know, I just want my own piece of land and I want to help help each other out and figure out, you know, my land isn't so suitable for growing apple trees and my neighbors is, so maybe I'll help them out with their apple orchard and then get some of the harvest. And similar thing, like I have land that can be used for gathering firewood and they don't have any forests. So, you know, it's it's all about working together and I think that I think that what you're saying is is just a really good point. Like, I think accepting where we're at and not spending our whole lives in meetings trying to figure every little detail out. And I think just owning our own pieces has made that a lot easier here. Yeah, because while I respected the the way they figured out which tree to cut down, I was like, well, you got like a thousand acres, and there's like five hundred of them, so pick one and cut it down. Um, you know, so one time, one side I'm really revering what they're doing. At the other side, I'm thinking that two weeks could have been used to catch fish or plant three more of those trees or something. You know, I'm not yeah. questioning what they're doing, but I do. You know, the, the decision by committee is, and I think the other thing is, don't people really tend to move out to places like this because they want freedom of choice? Oh yeah, oh, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's really important. They're kind of tired of society and they want, and it, not society as people, but society as the rules of society. Uh, and they just kind of want something where they can live their life and breathe free, fresh air and, and do as they choose. Yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think learning to hone, you know, while we may have those things of really wanting independence, I think it's also really important to hone our skills of communication because no matter what, we need other people and we need to be able to get along. And something that something that I've gotten really into is this nonviolent communication or compassionate communication. Marshall Rosenberg wrote a book on it that I would really recommend to anyone 
who's either wanting to live in community or just wanting to get along with their spouse or business partners or neighbors. Can you kind of explain or, what that is? Because I'm just not familiar with the term nonviolent communication. I, I mean, yes. I, I'm familiar with the words, but not assembled as a thing. Yeah, and it's interesting because I I think that I have I have some some confusion that comes up around just the term nonviolent, but <laughs> just like you know people should be able to defend themselves, and I think that that's something really really important, and it's something that the quote unquote nonviolent communication totally understands is the need to defend ourselves. But basically, the idea is is that when we are trying that everyone when they are living they're trying to meet their basic needs and they want to help other people meet their basic needs but when we communicate with each other things get all jumbled up and so what this what this kind of strategy does is it looks at instead of saying like saying something like uh i oh i'm not coming up with an example but Basically, the idea is we focus on our own needs and on our feelings when we communicate with people. And an example would be I, when, like I could say, and it also has to do with the observation. So when you cook and don't clean up your dishes, I feel frustrated because I have a big need for cleanliness in the kitchen. And I think that if you said that to someone, it'd be a lot more effective than wash your damn dishes. (laughs) <laughs> and so and so I think that it really it really has been a huge tool for me both in my personal relationships and in putting on this big event Firefly and just with my neighbors of just you know really focusing on needs and asking people to help us meet our needs rather than demanding that they do this or that without context of why. Cool. Well, can we talk here toward the end here a little bit more about Firefly and what people would expect if they were to go? Well, um, let me go back here. I'm really appreciating the fact that this isn't live. (laughs) Basically, it's a four-day event, and when people arrive, they have the choice of either camping on site for free or renting a cabin while they're there. And there is a big area where all the classes are posted, and then there's areas to sign up for classes. And so they choose the classes they want to take and sign up for the classes. And like I said, there's two class sessions a day. And so during each class session, they get to choose one class to take. And then there's um, there's breaks like lunchtime and dinner time where people can just like meet each other and socialize and get really jazzed and excited that there's other people like them out there in the world. And um, so there's also um, events that happen each night. There's a big fire and there's storytelling. We have some local storytellers that tell stories. Do the trade blanket thing. We do a trade blanket. We also do a barter circle. We have one potluck night that's really fun. People can cook their food either at their own camps on camp stoves or there's a primitive kitchen area where people can people can utilize the fire, utilize clay pots, utilize cast iron, and really have have help figuring out how to cook over a fire, which is another basic skill that I think people people in our culture really don't know much about. It's very yeah, I completely agree. Very important. So it's just it's just a really fun event, and it works 
for everyone, like whether you're 80, we have some participants who are 85 years old, and then we have two-year-olds who come, and we have a kids program, and it, it really feels comfortable, I think, for people from all different walks of life, you know, whether they're camping on site, whether they're staying in a cabin, or whether they get a hotel off site and come in during the day. That's cool. Is there anything that's like, I mean, is this some, I've seen some events where like everybody's in, you know, traditional attire and it's expected or, or things like that. Or is this like, you know, one, maybe there's a guy sitting here in buskins and a guy next to him in blue jeans. Which, which oh, you've is got it. it. You've got it. Okay. We've got the whole gamut. We got, we got pretty girls in buckskin. We've got, we've got old men. We've got people in their running clothes. We've got, we've got the whole, the whole cultural and attire gamut. Nothing is required. So nobody should feel like they're going to be out of place because, hey, I've never done anything like this before. I, I don't want to wrap myself in a deer skin. I want to go out there in my t-shirt and jeans and that's, that's just fine next to somebody else who might be a little bit more of a primitive uh, at least even just for the event. I know a lot of people, like, they like to be in the garb and stuff for the events, and then, you know, day-to-day they're a stockbroker or something. Yeah, and we we have all those kinds. And I think something that's just so wonderful to see at the Firefly Gathering and other events like it, there's there's a ton of gatherings like it. that There's links to it on the Firefly webpage, different gatherings across the country. But what's so cool about it is that, everyone is talking with each other and and getting along like people in buckskin people in you know dockers you know the the whole gamut of folks is feels comfortable around each other and accepts each other and that's something that we don't necessarily see all the time you know people from all different walks of life all different lifestyles all different ages different colors you know all different people getting along and accepting each other and that's something that is is just so beautiful and it just makes sense because those skills are important to everybody and so i just love seeing people accepting each other and getting along with each other there. And it's something, too, with the um, essentials program that I'm teaching for Wild Abundance. Like, I was, I, I've taught a lot for herb schools, and there the typical student is, is like a young 20s lady, and, and they're all kind of have this hippie background and style. And the essentials program is totally different. Like, I have... There's um there's a 24 year old guy who just got back from traveling the world. There's a 55 year old black preacher from Atlanta. There's awesome. like these these two men from Athens, Georgia, who just really want to learn about homesteading and just bought land. You know, there's there's a woman who lives 10 miles away from here and just bought 30 acres and with her husband and wants to like implement a really good permaculture design. Like it's it's just really exciting to me to see the unexpected diversity of folks that that are attracted to this stuff. Yeah, I've always found that, like, as soon as you put together any type of a themed event like this that's themed on something human, it doesn't have to be this. It can be anything that's, like, a human topic, as long as it's not, like, you know, new types of casualty loss insurance, as long as it's, like, <laughs> actual human being subject... People come and they're always diverse and everybody somehow, in spite of the fact that the TV and radio and politicians tell us it can't be done, everybody seems to like get along with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. it's one, because we take all that crap of life and get it out of the way, and two, well, there's it's self-policing. It's very libertarian in my mindset. Like yeah. It's expected that if you come to the community, you'll be nice to the other people in the community or then the rest of the people in the community uh, might ask you to go away. 
And yeah, it's amazing yeah. that people can sort themselves out if you let them. And, you know, something happened with this last Firefly Gathering that just amazed me because I'm I'm the director of it, and so usually everything has to go through me, and it's kind of exhausting. But there was there was this... Um, this young woman who's a sister of one of my friends who's 17 and some some man there was asking her to drink with him and go skinny dipping and okay. she was not into it and sure. so she went and talked to some men in our community and they went and talked with the man and they told him that he had to leave and got in a car and drove him to a local hotel you know, and that just—it <laughs> just felt so good to me that exactly what you're talking about—that libertarian idea that we can take care of ourselves. Nobody calls to the police or yeah. files a lawsuit. Just like, okay, no. you don't get it. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Yeah. And, and that's that—that is a very libertarian principle. Of you solve your own problems when you can before you involve authority. Oh yeah. Uh, whether it's domestic authority or you know outside authority. Yeah. Yeah, very I love very it. cool. So you guys, you guys are killing me, all of you folks, with these awesome events all over the place. I, I feel like I'm never home anymore. I, I'd love to come. I'll see if I can make it work. I, I can't say that I will at this point. Um, we're kind of on a major travel schedule up through May, and so the June's after that. Um, but it sounds like an amazing event, and I, I can only imagine the relationships that are forged there. Yeah, yeah, it's great, and it happens every year. This year. In June, and you know, I'm sure we would love to have you and your wife come if you wanted to, or just you come, or just her come, or whomever. It's well, it's the fact we can get a, a cabin will get her to come. I mean, oh, yeah, that big, could happen. Not big on the tent camping, I like <laughs> it, but she's not. And I think that's cool, though, that you guys have that because a lot of people that normally wouldn't be able to get a spouse to come or w- wouldn't feel comfortable bringing kids because they need kind of that alone time and space to deal with the family issues and kids that are, you know, kids get pouty and, and what have you. They have that available to them there. Oh, yeah, and it's it's just so cool. Like one of our instructors, he actually trades. He brings, he's making a bunch of knives for us to give as gifts for our instructors. And he last year brought his dad. And then this year he's bringing his wife, mom, and dad, and his dad. Because <laughs> it is just so wonderful for all sorts of different people. And I invited my, my dad and my aunt and my sister and my cousin came one year, and they just had a blast. And, they you know, they don't have the same lifestyle that I have. They live a pretty pretty standard American lifestyle. And it just, it just did wonders for them. And I was just getting emails from my aunt for months just saying how inspired she was by the event. And it just felt so good to me. Very, very cool. And uh, real quick before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about this cabin that you're building because uh, that mm-hmm. sounds cool. Uh, what's kind of your your vision for like its size when you're finished, and you know what will it have, won't won't it, won't it have that maybe you know people would be you know expecting out of a home. And my other big one is, have you had any problems with interference from like local code officials or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Well, I am very lucky in that my boyfriend has a very very conventional house on his land, <laughs> which is okay. adjo- adjoining my land. And so it's um, that's where I live, and my little cabin that I'm building, I mean, I'll probably stay there some, but it's officially a shed. 
And um, that works out really, really well. You don't have to have a septic tank and stuff like that if you have a shed and you don't have running water in the building. So how I've kind of gotten around that is I'm building an outdoor kitchen that's under 12 feet by 12 feet. And that outdoor kitchen is going to have running water. And we're actually building a rocket stove for it, which is going to be the fuel for cooking. And it's, it's really amazing. Like, you can do so much and have such control of heat, and the fuel is really easy to produce from, like, coppiced maples, which just come up on their own over and over again. But back to the cabin, it's going to – it's it's made with pine logs, mostly from this land. It's all permitted, and um, it's going to have a little sleeping space. It's going to have a little little tiny kitchenette and a little living space. It's only 12 feet by 16 feet, but it's two stories. And it's a clear story, so I'm kind of taking advantage of the sunlight to do some of the heating, but there's also going to be a wood stove in it. And it's just just a really sweet location. And I really enjoy cooking outside most of the year, too. So the outdoor kitchen is also going to be have a deck coming off of it, which is going to be a teaching space. And here where we live, that works for a lot of the year, and that's kind of why I have the essentials program as it is um, being only nine months of the year because it's, it works for the months when it's nice out. And we're sure. going to actually be building um, a schoolhouse for the Living Skills School and for the Chestnut School of Herbal Medicine, which is um, – Juliet Blankenspores and Zeb Friedman, who I work with a lot of living system design, is going to be part of that too. And so the hope is that we grow to the point where we're really making changes in people's lives. Like, and I think that this sort of school idea and the idea of school being somewhere where you can be empowered to learn the skills that really matter in life is something that I really want to make happen. And I'm hoping to be able to make it so that college kids, too, can attend and get college credit for it. Like, I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I would have been exposed to this stuff when I was in college, you know, and kind of in this this mode where I'm sitting and paying tuition and all this stuff anyway, but to take that and transform it into something actually applicable to our lives, it's really exciting to me. So that's a big project, and... And uh, that kind of that's going to happen on the other side of my land, so it's exciting. That's well, very very awesome. I'm I'm excited to hear about all the good work you guys are doing, folks. Again, uh, Natalie is the uh, I guess you, you would you say you're the co-founder or director or what a Firefly. What would be the right way to say that? The co-founder and the general coordinator or director. Gotcha. That's a big. I don't, man. That's why I like to go to other people's events. I don't have to coordinate them. That's a huge <laughs> job. Uh, and you can find out more about that at fireflygathering.org. And then you also do the stuff with the intensives and some other things. Uh, you have like, is it, I guess it's your own site, wildabundance.net. Wildabundance.net and the Living Skills School is where I offer those programs for kind of. Firefly, I think, is all about exposing people to these skills and getting them excited about it. And then the Living Skills School is giving them like a depth of knowledge to where if they want to, they can apply this stuff more deeply in their lives. You got any final thoughts for folks? If maybe they're thinking, I'd like to, I'd like to do this stuff, but to have any apprehension about just getting in and throwing both feet in the pool and, and giving it a shot? I would say to start, this is actually a permaculture principle, small, slow solutions. So I think starting small and really trying 
to trying to see what's comfortable and pushing your edges and your limits a little bit, but not going out into the wilderness by yourself with just a knife first thing. But really start (laughs) slow, get comfortable, learn, learn what people you have around you and what resources you can access and just, just don't stress out. Be, be excited about the changes that you can make every day and really applaud yourself for those changes that you are making. Awesome, awesome advice. Well, Natalie, thanks for being with us today on the Survival Podcast. You're welcome back anytime you'd like to return. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Natalie Bogwalker helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for the